Hi, and welcome to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. Every week we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Mel. I'm Katie. And we're your hosts. This week we watched Suffragette, directed by Sarah Gavron and released in 2015. The plot goes something like this. The story of a working class Londoner Maud, who is swept up in the radical suffragette movement in 1912. Yes, that that essentially is the plot. Um, so suffragette has been something that we've been talking about and thinking about for a long time before it came out. And ultimately, when it did come out, it was just kind of, it was so meh that I don't have very strong feelings about it, even though I know there's really big problems with it. It was just wasn't, it was such a like kind of unimpressive dull movie anyway mm. that I was like, well, whatever. Yeah, I was disappointed, but thankfully I'd been prepared for disappointment, if that makes sense. Like I think about a year ago, maybe I was really excited about the idea of a suffragette movie. And then uh, more and more talk came out as the release approached and more and more issues came up and then, then it was delayed here as well. It's only only came out here on Boxing Day. Um, we're recording this before Christmas, but it hasn't actually come out here yet. Um, and like, yeah, I we think, went to a preview screening. Yeah, and so by the time I watched it, I was kind of excited, but also kind of scared <laughs> about what I was going to see, and ultimately disappointed because I loved the history and that, but it really fell down on storytelling. I thought. I think, yeah, I think uh, you've got a lot of actors who are pretty good and kind of trying to give it their all. Um, I thought Carrie Mulligan put in a solid performance. I liked Ben Whishaw as her husband. He did a good job. Um, I thought there were a couple of the supporting cast members that were kind of really going for it. But at the same time, it's very reductive and kind of like a checklist of things women were going through at the time all mm. being applied to Maud. Yeah, it's like yep. and and they had like when with the central three women who were part of the revolution that we saw a lot of, we had one who had a lot of children and one who had one children but was trying to have another and couldn't and one who had no children. And it's just felt like everything was like checked off this, you know, list. What mm. can we include? This is what the working class woman. This is the middle class woman who wasn't allowed to go to university. And this is the upper class woman who, you know, is, is um, wealthy, but her husband controls all her money. And this is the bit where Maud doesn't have any control of her money. This is the bit where Maud has to go work in the wash house. And this is the bit where Maud gets force fed. And this is the bit where, yeah. Where Maud doesn't and get all, to have her kid. Like, yeah. All of that all stuff. All leads up to, yeah. That stuff was interesting to me, though, yeah. just because we, I think, we now have a lot of problems in terms of our current system of uh, um, child, uh, not child care, child, like who the child goes to. Custody. And custody. Child custody and and uh, and that sort of thing, which comes out of, I think, this movement, which is like, which comes out of wanting because they had no control. Mm. And now, and it's, sort of now it's sort of that- assumed that the child will go yeah. to the mother I- and that. Is, it's kind of gone the other way, and I think it would be nice to have a balance well, there. Well, but see, now um, that is something that actually has changed in recent years. In Australia in particular, um, the MRA movements here got quite powerful during the last Conservative government and managed to convince the Howard government to change the laws around custody and the family court. So the assumption was a 50-50 shared care kind of thing. So mm. this is a total digression, but um, there was <laughs> there was a bit of that kind of 
um, men's rights activism. I'm not really thinking about the legal aspects, more yeah. of the societal, cultural aspects right. of it. The, we, yeah. we assume that, that mothers will be, be better parents and we assume that the mother yeah. should have the care. Like well, the, the, the legal is, aspects think, of it, I think most judges do also try and go for the 50-50 yeah. care I, arrangement yeah. unless something, unless there's yeah. a reason not to. Um, I, but, I get that, but also um, what it, it wasn't about the men being carers, it was about the men owning their children. I understand. Which is a different sort of thing. Whereas now it's sort of um it, But it's now it is that, kind of like women own Yeah, their children. women are the ones who are responsible and therefore the children go with the woman kind of uh, yeah. And, and fathers are assumed to be incompetent parents. I get that. Or babysitting their own children. I yeah. I get that. Um that's kind of more what I was aiming towards. I know yeah. that legally it's it's not as uh um as clear cut as that. And and I mean the thing is a lot of the institutional problems that they were suffering then there are still there's still a lot of legacy from that around mm-hmm. you know male ownership of wives and children and uh, male control of the money and all that kind of stuff which still kind of are things that women deal with now so. yes i agree with that i just thought i was interested in that concept because that's kind of one of the things that are really radically different to how we treat that today yeah. I think that that is one of the specific. Whereas the other stuff, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, like so I know about that. I know that. Okay, that yeah, because I was I, I just looked at that and I thought I saw um, things that I've seen in actually in a really terrible modern movie. What was it called? The Wolf of Wall Street. That's the one where Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio's character is hideously abusive to his wife, and he starts screaming at her about his children, and and there's all this language of ownership around his children, and that's what. The, lang- the way, you know, um, Ben Wishaw's character it felt, it felt like that as well, where, where it was just a, a lot of abusive men that you see, not just in movies. Um, it, a lot of it is about them acting like they own the children, my kids, you won't take my kids from me kind of stuff. So mm. um, I sort of, yeah, that, that to me sounds, it seems both distant and horribly familiar. Right. Um, yeah, I, I was yeah thinking about kind of the way that we treat that as a society and as a culture, I think is different for me, or at least as far as I've seen in my experiences seems really different. Um, but that, that kind of ownership thing is, is a very common trait. But yeah, it, it, uh, I think one of the, a lot of the best scenes were when Carrie Mulligan was with her son, because she puts a lot of effort into coming to life for him and making everything kind of, uh, you know, fun and, and not burdening him with a lot of the stuff that's going on. Mm. And so, and that makes it even more affecting when he is let in on what's happening and he is sent off away from his family. Yeah. It makes it that much worse. So I think that storyline works out quite well. Um, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you just sort of like, yeah, I get it, but it's it's not yeah. as interesting as you guys want it to be. And I wanted to be into it. I Yeah, I wanted this to be like Selma, to be something that told a piece of history that really brought it to life, that really like uh, made me walk out of the cinema wanting to make changes in the world. And it didn't do that. Um, that was the, the sort of personal story there was quite affecting. But I think um, – and. This the comparison only came to mind because I've spent this week watching all six Star Wars movies. But the problem, one of the the key failing, probably the key failing of the Star Wars prequels, 
is that they don't adequately describe how Anakin becomes radicalised and goes to the dark side. They don't disagree. tell that story very well Wildly at all. disagree. Yeah, he sent me a text about that and I was like, this is not the major <laughs> yeah, problem they, they with the prequels. Fa- well, they failed to tell you how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. Yeah, That's but what they I give think. it, it's not, it, they fail to give you like, a, I mean, you, you called it becoming radicalised, but they do give a justification for his behaviour. Now, whether or not it's really all that believable that this yeah, is the so, justification for his behaviour, to me, it doesn't really matter because none of the the justifications for anybody's behaviours in the prequel matters at all anyway right. because all they're doing is getting from step A to step right. B. Right, but what they but, do is they don't adequately describe how he becomes radicalised. And that's that was my problem with Maud as well. I didn't really feel that journey of radicalization. It's kind of like uh, Maud sees this happen and therefore this, and then this happens and so she has to do this, and then right. this happens and therefore. Like, She's it's the sort fairly of- typical, you know, hero's journey of just an ordinary person who yeah, was going about their was- business and stumbled across this and then got caught up in it, and then she takes up the mantle once she understands what's going on. And I think it's it's it, she's too much of an audience surrogate in that regard so that yeah. like she doesn't realize what's going on so we have to be because we have to be taught it and so she has to be taught it mm. from the beginning yeah. and that is I think one of the issues with it and is it that also it's, but I, I mean I to, the way that you're talking about like the, the they do the phraseology the language of becoming radicalized is really like big at the moment and that sort of stuff mm. I, I don't see it as all that unbelievable that Maud as the character in this would end up doing the things that she was doing because she becomes more and more violent as things become worse and worse for her. Yeah, no, I totally see why. So and that also, I makes sense. To I think me. they I do some really good. Uh, there's some really good stuff where you, you get the feeling that she has literally no other choice because mm. everyone else has turned her away. She's no job, no husband, no kid, no nothing. Yeah, and um, and um, Brendan Gleeson who. By the way, I don't think he's a very good actor. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's played this exact same role in everything I've ever seen him in. He's just slightly more blustery as Moody or something. Like, he's very dull. But anyway, uh, he keeps going like, oh, you do have a choice and you could, you know, do all these things. But I felt like I wanted to, uh, I wanted him to be presenting something that would actually be tempting, but nothing he said made any sense. Like, there it was, was just, no choice. There wasn't a choice. And also, yeah. he's not presenting an alternative that's better. No, it's right? either say stay stuck in your house where you have no control of your own money and no control of your own child and no control of your own time. But she doesn't have that choice anymore anyway. Yeah. And she basically doesn't have that choice anymore at the very first part when she's doing things that she kind of were out of her control. Like she just goes to hear her friend talk at this thing mm. and then she ends up being pressured into going up and talking herself and then mm. she ends up enjoying it. But like – you know, she's already he's already distanced himself from her and mm. and that sort of thing at that point. So yeah, no, she I, she I can't really go back. Like no. I- even if you know they were to yeah, he, the, I think the um, Brendan Gleeson's character doesn't get it. The other thing I thought though, I also is think that, he doesn't add that much. No, there could have been a much more interesting character there that that that, that isn't there. Yeah. I feel like that's it's kind of it felt like a placeholder character. Oh, we'll think of something better later. We, we need, but a, they never we got need there. some kind of antagonist to stand in here. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think also uh, the way the film ends, it ends with Emily Wilding Davison's death. <laughs> ends, you say, as if it has an ending. Oh yeah, well, it ends with well, it, it and and I think the whole thing was written so that it would build up to the Emily Wilding Davison thing because that was such a big, but she's well-known, barely in it. I know because that was such a big, well-known event and. Whatever. And it ends with that. And then we see Maud like go out to march in her funeral parade. But we don't like 
we don't see what the effect of that is on Maud because we have this journey that she goes on where she is becoming more and more radicalized. She's getting into this movement to a point where um, not just that she's, you know, doing acts of violence on post boxes, but somebody's actually dying. The stakes get quite high. And we, sh- we see her march off in this funeral parade, but we don't actually see, like, what that does to her character. We don't take the no. story through to its logical conclusion. No. We don't take anything through. To- There's no conclusion to this movie. None of the characters get an adequate, you know, ending apart from maybe uh, Emily, who dies, and possibly the daughter of uh, uh, Anne-Marie Duff's character, who Violet has probably, you know, the most complete story in this yeah. movie because she starts in one place and she goes through a lot and she yeah. ends in another place. And they use their sort of end intertitles, I guess, the the end you know writing on the screen stuff to talk about like when um you know, certain types of women were given the vote. And when- no, certain countries were given the vote, which is inaccurate. Well, because- no, no, they they the first they talk about um there are women over thirty who own oh, property right. were given a vote in nineteen eighteen, and women who. And, and then the rest of the women who were British citizens can vote in, in 1928. 28. And, um, I'm no good at numbers. And then, yeah, then they run through the numbers, which we'll get to the, the years that other countries got the vote, but we'll run through that in a minute because it's not strictly accurate. Um, but instead of using, like, the, they don't even use the end titles to kind of tell you how people's stories ended. Well, because Maud wasn't a real person. No, Maud wasn't a real person, but, but Helena Bonham Carter's character was a real person. But it baffles and- me that they didn't even have, they made up this character and this is the story they made up for her. Yeah, they the, could- the story they made up for her didn't well, have an ending. Right, and when you make like, up a character. Like if it was a real person, you'd at least understand, oh, well, this person just yeah. continued on. But this is not, this is not a real person. They could have had no, her and- die or do something interesting or, you know, do anything if and, they and wanted so to. When, and, and also like this big radicalizing moment of this woman dying, like what, what does happen? Like, I mean, I know in real life that as soon as World War One started, the suffragettes kind of backed off on all their um, civil disobedience and it just kind of slowed down for a few years. But like, and we are getting to that point in the movie, but like, well, what happens to Maud? Does Maud decide maybe that she doesn't want to be quite so violent? Does Maud decide that she was going down the right path and she wants to keep doing it in memory of her friend? Like, I, I want to know that answer. Yeah, no, we don't get, have any uh, any understanding of how that affects Maud. No, she and how is she going to keep going? Because like, she has a line where she says to to Helena Bonham Carter, "We go on. You taught me that." So I think that the assumption is that they would go on fighting the yeah, good fight, or whatever. Is still, but yeah. it it is really odd, and it's really um and and like you said, they only bring Emily in like quite late, and she's barely ever there. And you you just kind of it's assumed knowledge in the audience that you're supposed to know who she is and why she's important. No, I had no idea who she and was. And I, I only heard of Emily Wilding Davidson first time like two years ago because if you're not like white and English and you know the history of the the English suffrage movement, you probably don't know about this. Like this is a very um, – it's it's like a very specific bit of history and it's not really bringing the audience along because – I, I would imagine a good portion of your audience would not know about it. Which is ironic because the rest of the movie is so intent on like giving, force feeding yeah. you all of this information and then uh, and then th- that particular piece of information that you think mm. would be fairly important is not even yeah. like a major part of it. And obviously Maud wasn't really there too, so you'd think they would insert her to other places where she wasn't really there in order to have somebody to tell us this story. Yeah. It is such an odd like such an oddly put together movie. It doesn't seem like they really knew what they wanted out of it. No. But I do think there were certain moments that worked really well. Uh mm-hmm. Meryl Streep's Emmeline Pankhurst scene yep. is really good. It's really good. Her scene her her speech is terrific. You can feel the excitement of the crowd building. They build that up really well. Um 
there's some shots that I think are nice. There's a lot of stuff that's in through windows and stuff, so you mm. feel like you're looking in on this thing and then they bring you in and you come inside. That sort of stuff is really clever. Yeah, well, I, I really well. liked that one because I didn't know about that um, Emmeline Pankhurst was basically stopped. Like she, she went on permanent travel, on permanent tour basically from about 1910. She just she was never in one place for very long. She just travelled around talking and it was all very impromptu and like, you know, it was like a little secret message among the, the revolutionaries. Oh, she's going to be speaking here at this time and go to this place. And then it's, you know, she's whisked in and whisked out again. And it's all very like secret. And I, I liked that. It was well done. Yeah. I feel like there's a really interesting Emmeline Pankhurst story in there. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stories in here. Maud's just isn't one of them. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. Um, I think I remember when we watched Pride and, um, that did a similar thing, inserted a made up character into a real, historical situation. Yeah, and he was the most boring character yeah. and I don't even remember and him essentially because the others are more interesting. Right, and although Carrie Mulligan does a really good job and I think is a very um, very effective sort of everyman for the audience, it doesn't. It, it just doesn't quite work. I think also she kind of loses it towards the end of the movie. The beginning of the movie, the, she has these little flashes of like, again, scenes that are really good. The scene where she talks to the council is really good. Mm. It's really good because you can see her lack of education but her wanting to express herself in it. And she acts that. It's not mm. just in the words. She brings that to the character, um, which is really impressive because that's a complicated kind of concept to get across, you know, mm. and she's really pleased when it gets recognised and then she gets so angry when later on they they say that they didn't get the vote and she feels personally slighted by that. Yeah. That all works really well. There is, like, pieces of this movie that you can see that they've kind of gone well like this is this character what's the logical outcome of this moment for this character and stuff so that makes it all the more frustrating that it doesn't they don't keep that up mm. it's very inconsistent in how they do that and it doesn't seem to know what its focus is i could i think the helen and bonham carter character could have just not been there um, mm. She doesn't bring anything to the story. She seemed to be sleepwalking through this role. I thought she looked bored. Like, you know, um, a few years ago in something, she played the Queen. Oh, the King's, King's Speech. Speech. And she was so good in that. And yeah, not, like, not a dissimilar era either. Well, that's what I was thinking. That's why it came to mind is that it's not. it's a similar era and it's a – sort of a similar kind of historical role that that was could have been a really interesting person yep. in history yep. and she just didn't seem at all interested in being in this movie. Yeah. Or well, again, it was one of those things where they they kind of shoehorned into her character and I know she was a real person, but they sort of shoehorned in a lot of that she was like the middle class women's struggle like you know, this was uh, she wanted to be a doctor and she couldn't be a doctor, and so therefore she. Like, it's and less they had to shoehorned than oversimplified, I think. Yeah, they kind of oversimplified everybody down to these like this is the essence of this character mm. and this is the essence of this character, rather than them being complex women. Yeah, they are like there is this person. She her husband is abusive. She has a lot of children. That's why she gets angry and she is acting out through this way. Yeah. Um, this is this person and she was kept from being a doctor and this is why she acts out. And, like it's all mm. very kind of they, – they only have the personality traits that they need to serve the plot yeah. and there's nothing beyond that as a complex real person. Yeah, and I think that's when um, that's when historical movies work well because I think like, again, going back to Selma because it was just so good and it was very relatively recent, it, it actually engages with like Martin Luther King as a person 
who is not a great husband who like causes issues in his own family and then and it engages with a few of the other characters as well as like real complex people who are like not just um they're not just the people who hit the high points of the history books mm. yeah exactly and and i think that this movie could do with more of that sort of thing um and and then there's the stuff we have to talk about, which is the erasure of um, women of colour from history, which this movie does in really annoying and appalling ways. Yeah, so I, I'd heard about it before I saw it, but I didn't actually do any reading until afterwards, and now I have become radicalised because I immediately uh, after I watched it, I, the um, – the uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast is doing a suffrage women's suffrage series at the moment, and they did a two-part episode on Sophia Dalip Singh, who was a major British suffragette in this very particular union of this movement, who was also had an Indian background. So she was a woman of colour and she was very prominent in this movement, in this union. Like, there is no way you could make a movie about this union at this time and not have her in it, but they did. And right. I was so mad when I discovered that. Yeah, there's a, but there's not just that. There's also that text at the end that says when all the all the different countries got vote right to vote, and mm. the, of course they only did when white women get the, yeah, got the right to vote. Yeah, because they said like um, yeah, the, the the date that that they said American women got the vote is 1920, but that's not true for African American women who didn't get the vote till 1945. And they also say the Australian women got the vote 1902, in 1902, and and mm. Aboriginal women didn't get to vote till after the 1960s, because it wasn't until the 1960s that Aboriginal people were recognised as citizens of Australia. Okay, so that's I looked this up. It's not strictly true. It, it was what happened in Australia was that federally everyone had the vote and everyone who was a British subject and it included Aboriginal people. But what happened um, but this, in the States, the laws were sometimes different. So in like Queensland and the Northern Territory, um, not Northern Territory, in Queensland and Western Australia, um, Aboriginal people were like actively disenfranchised by the government. And that's what they had to bring in like a Voting Rights Act in 1962 about. Um, the referendum wasn't about recognising them as citizens, but it was the um, – I oh, damn it, I looked this up like two days ago and I've forgotten it all. But anyway, they were, were recognised as Because it's all really citizens. confusing. Yeah, they were recognised as citizens, but officially all Aboriginal people in Australia didn't have the right to vote in both their state and federally until 1962. Right. Um, which is, you know, awful. But – Quite a lot did vote from 1902, but um, it just depended on it – was, it was a bit like um, the American South under Jim Crow. It depended on where you lived as to whether you were disenfranchised. So legally you might be allowed to vote, but, you know, if you were illiterate or if you didn't live in town or if you couldn't get to the polling place, there was all those kind of like functional um, disenfranchisement going on as well. Okay. But yeah, that was clearly yeah. I misunderstood that completely. But uh, yeah, yeah, and then uh, it was really entertaining to watch those uh, dates come up, though it, depressingly entertaining. But just for the audience reaction, because there were two that got really big audience reactions. Mm. One of them was uh, Switzerland in 1973, I think it was, mm. and the other one was um, was I think it was the France 1944 one. Yeah, yeah. The very last one was Qatar in 2003, which kind of blew my mind because my best friend in high school. Uh, was from Qatar, and we graduated in 2002, which means that she did not have the right to vote in her own country. Yeah. That until the year after we mind. graduated from high school and after we, she yeah. would have been 19. And I happened to notice over the weekend that, like, um, there were some Saudi Arabian women who were allowed to vote for only the first time just this past weekend, mm. and on, only in municipal elections under very strict conditions. But literally, they, they do, still do not have the vote. Is that... A re- is that something where 
and I don't know this, so don't get cranky with me, but is that something where they did used to have the right to vote and then it was taken away and then um, it's only recently come back? I don't know. I'd have to check on that because one. Because I know Saudi Arabia did have a much more progressive mm. uh, yes. um, culture back in the day. And I've also seen a lot of stuff recently about people. A lot of people were protesting having to wear the hijab and, and wear head coverings of various sorts um, when that was first introduced as well. So yeah. I think there's a lot of things where there's a more um, complicated thing going on. Yeah, where, things- like people did have certain rights and they've been right. taken away and, and mm-hmm. recently they've been fighting for them again. Yeah. And I, that's why it's a little too simple just to kind of teach people, whether at the end of a movie or in history class, that, you know, women in Australia got the right to vote in 1902 or I women can see, in I can understand why people do that for yeah. younger for younger audiences. Yeah. And I feel like suffragette, if it had some of those things, could have been a really good teaching tool for younger audiences. Mm. But because it didn't, it lacked a lot of the kind of uh, power to its message, I think. Mm. Because the story stuff, like uh, I, looking at it from a high school teacher perspective, um, there's a lot of movies that work really well for teenagers that don't work well for adults. Stuff like Gattaca, which I don't know if you've seen as an adult, but as a teenager. Only as a teenager, actually. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like mind-blowing as a teenager. You watch yeah, it yeah. as an adult and you're like, this is incredibly oversimplified and kind of dumb. But when you're a teenager, everything is like laid out for you in a way that you haven't seen it laid out before and so it all makes sense well, to you. Well, this is the Supergirl conversation we were having the other day. Sorry, yes. Yes, uh, yeah, that kind of like that. But, uh, yeah, so but stuff like Suffragette could have been a really good teaching tool for schools, mm. but it doesn't actually have – because it doesn't have the ending, I think that would be a problem. And also because it doesn't actually – the power of its message is lost in – it doesn't seem to know where it wants to go or what it wants to do. Mm. Gattaca has a very simple message that it wants to get across, and everything is dedicated to that message. But even though these characters are reduced to things that they can do for the story, the actual message of it, what is it? Mm. Is it women should fight for their rights? Doesn't seem to be really. Yeah, it seems to be kind of like, well, violence is bad, but in some circumstances it's okay. But then people could die. Like, what are they trying to go yeah. for here? And and so uh, because the key question that doesn't answer that, which we've I've said like three times, what happens when your friend does die in the service of this? What then happens to you? Nothing. We end the movie and we got fade to white. But yeah, I think the um. Put that put that part halfway through the movie or like yes. an act earlier, even just like two thirds of the way through the movie, mm. and it would have been a better movie because it would have cut down on all the uh, extraneous stuff that happens earlier, mm-hmm. and it would have uh, really made sense for the character, and then we could see where Maud goes. Also, that would you could do certain things as a montage, mm. and they would be just as effective, but possibly less overwhelming. Mm. Stuff like when she's in jail, that yeah. goes on for a long time. You yeah. know, you could have a montage of her being in jail a few times where like this at this moment she's been force fed and this moment she's gone through something and do that kind of thing and, mm. and get through that faster. And it might have been really effective to get us to understand where she's coming from as yeah. well. And then we could see more of her story because there's no story. Yeah. That, I think, is the real similarity between this and the prequels. There's no story. <laughs> There's no story. You yeah. need a story. Mm. I just wanted to touch again quickly on the erasure of women of colour from this movie because I did talk about like one of the uh, upper-class leaders of the movement being erased from it, and that is just unforgivable. But it also erases the multiculturalism of London of the time. Like, wh- If you were a working-class Londoner, there would have been people of colour in your life. People of colour – there – 
if there were immigrant communities, they were in the East End, which is where Maud lives and works. I can imagine if he worked in a laundry like that, there probably would have been a few Indian women working in there or other women from other parts of British colonies and things like that. It didn't take much. Like all you had to do was have a couple of background characters even just to show what the but world Melissa, was like. they couldn't find any photos of them. Yeah. Therefore, they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, and so now I get to like – and then I started reading about what the cast and crew had been saying about it. And then you hear things like it's the, the director and or the writer talking about how they only found two photos of women of colour and so they decided not to include it. Like, why not? You found two. Why not include one of them? Like, how hard is it? Yeah. Um, it just yeah. it just feels like and, – and then the way, like – Various cast members have like doubled down on it as well. Like there's um You do I I, I, I just, always uh, feel really uh um hesitant in uh attacking actors for what for that sort of thing because they will be given a dictate by the studio yeah, yeah. to say certain things when they're promoting the movie, right? So they can't say I mean, like when you can see what happens to people like Daniel Craig when they go against that. Mm. You know, and and these women especially, a lot of them are working actresses. I mean Anne Marie Duff is not famous. So for her to go against a studio that is employing her yeah, no, like I, I just I get really I know. Kind I think I just uncomfortable I just read in, in I just read a quote from her and a quote from Meryl Streep and like all on top of Well one Meryl another. Streep's gone on about how she's not a feminist, so I'm I know, cranky with her. I, yeah, and then she, And she can do better than that. And the funny thing is she goes on about how she's not a feminist and then does things like um count the number of critics who are considered top critics on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Like, really? Really? Yeah. I'm not a feminist, but equal but, rights for women. Yeah, okay. but look at look at how unbalanced it is for women here and here and here and here. I just that was funny. And and yeah, it's probably like it's more of that. And I think I just think there was some things that left a bad taste. Like the it's all it's um like the I'd rather be a rebel than a slave t shirt thing. Oh yeah, that was which was like case. um like you can understand why that would be an innocent mistake, right? Mm-hmm. For for like, and in- they could have just said it was an innocent mistake. We shouldn't have done that. It was in bad taste. Yeah, and then they didn't. And yeah. then they didn't. And that was kind of it. Just it's it. It all hasn't gone well. And yeah, I don't know. It just left a bit of a bad taste. Like the whole movie has just kind yeah. of there is a good on top of one good of article that you sent me. I think. That's about how, fe- how suffragette is great for white feminism, but not for anybody yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I, that is, yeah, that's a really big problem with this movie. I just don't. It's only the fact that, like, I feel like blaming the actresses is unless they did do it on their own. And and I think Meryl yeah. Streep is like f- is is successful enough that she doesn't have to worry about too much of that stuff. But I would hesitate with somebody like Anne Marie Duff who isn't. Yeah, or Romelu Garai. Um, they need to work. Yeah, like, they need yeah. to, and 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 to. That would definitely be biting the hand that feeds them if yeah, they're going to no, go I, and criticize this movie. That's a big deal. Yeah, and 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 I guess also people like you know they're just ordinary white women. They don't they're not prepared to like answer social justice questions in their when they're in being interviewed for a film that they're promoting. Like, they're but not- if you're looking at the power imbalance as well, we're talking about. I mean, it's still a very much a male dominated industry. Mm. So the power imbalance is is towards the men, not and between the white women and the non white women. Mm. And if the white women give up the position that they have, then they may end up, yeah, you know, yeah. not having jobs, and right? Stuff, exactly. But at the same time, you want them to speak. I, I but get also, that yeah, and but also like for it's for more complicated like, than I think. Yeah, I and and like you're saying with the ones who are particularly the ones who are, there are a lot of working actors who would have just gone in for a job. They don't know the whole picture at all nor do they nor do they need to because they're just going for a job and they were lucky enough to book the job i could not recognize ramola garai by the way I, the whole time i was like i know her where mm. do i know her from and it really drove me crazy yeah and then i saw her name in the credits and i was like oh yeah mm. there was something that i wanted to say that was like 
funny or entertaining to oh, finish please. this with. And yes. I've totally forgotten it now because oh, we were no. talking about it a few minutes ago. Um, uh, there were a few times that I laughed at this movie, but, but it was more because it was the lines were so heavy-handed and ridiculous yeah. that mm-hmm. I just laughed. Like certain scenes with the male police officers and the I stuff know. that they said, and you're like, these guys weren't talking like this. This is ridiculous. Mm. Like it really was just silly. And I also, I don't know, I really like Ben Whishaw. I know he played, like, I think he did a good job of playing the abusive husband in this, but it's, I still kind of, whenever he was on the screen, I was just like, oh, look at your pretty little face. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think that he was good because he, was, he wasn't like – um, Violet's husband, where he was like a bad, like he he was not like overtly bad. He wasn't beating his wife or anything. He was just operating strictly within what he was able to do, like legally, and what he'd been brought up to think was his right. So I've been reading about um, role playing games this week because my friend is creating one, and he sent me these things on different role playing games. And uh, there's one that has a structure where you're creating the downfall of a civilization and there's three character archetypes that you play and one is the hero one is the pillar of the community which is somebody who upholds the value of the community but is a working person and one is the fallen who is like the the antagonist and i was when i and i read that i think the night before i saw this and immediately while i was watching it i was like oh maud's the the hero Mm. and uh, sunny is the pillar and the cop is the fallen yeah i've done it i win yeah (laughs) oh totally it was really interesting to me to see the dynamics of that and how like simplified the story is and how the dynamics of that play out was yeah it was good and because it's ben wishaw who's like adorable and we love he's so beautiful it was actually was almost easier to see that like to see that pillar Actually, I think casting somebody who is so likable yeah. in the character that, you know, is kind of insidious is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still, did, it still didn't lessen my glee every time he came back on screen and I was like, oh, look at your pretty little face. Nah. It's yeah. terrible, I know. But we'd just seen Spectre a little while ago and he was so cute as Q in that. Yeah, I know. I like Ben Wishore a lot. I should really watch London Spy, but it doesn't look like something that would interest me. Oh, it looks like it something has... that would interest me very greatly. Yeah. Maybe you should get it and I'll just watch bits that you tell me to. Also, I think he makes out with men in it, so yay. Cool. Um, Is, it, is that TV or a movie? It's a TV show. Okay, yeah, no, I'll, I'll see if I can get hold of it. When, once Star Wars is over, I'll have time to watch TV again. I know, right? <sighs> anyway, uh, let's um, go back yeah, to Suffragette. Yeah, that's right. Let's wrap up this one. Um, Do it, you have a rating for it? Yeah, I'm going to give it three stars. I gave it, I think right after I saw it, I gave it two and a half, so I'll stick with two and a half. I don't think it's good enough for three. I don't think it's good enough to be even just solid, but it isn't terrible either. So mm, Yeah, fair enough. Okay, uh, thank you very much for listening to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. If you would like to read our show notes or find old episodes, you can do that on our website, silverscreenqueens.com. If you want to read Katie's review of Suffragette or any of the other movies she watched, has watched this year or over the last couple of years, you can do that at her blog, silverscreenqueen.wordpress.com. And if you want to find us on social media, we are on Facebook, we are on Twitter at screen underscore queens, and we are on Tumblr, tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com. Star Wars. No, because this episode is coming out after Christmas. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Bye.